Great. Morning, everybody. So, so good to be here. Uh, welcome to May. Best month of the year. Who would agree? May? Yeah, all the best people are born in May. Um, where were my presents and cards? I don't, I don't know. Uh, thank you to, to those who did. Um, friends, uh, So starting a new series, let's get straight into it, because uh, time is moving on. But it's just great to be here. And by the way, yeah, absolutely, so welcome. If, the, if you're trying us out, if you're a newcomer, if you're a visitor, really, really pleased that you're here. And please don't rush away um, at the end. But we're starting a new series of Sunday messages, going to run over seven Sundays, punctuated by um, Pentecost in a few weeks' time. On uh, this theme, bodybuilding, I appreciate that might not be a phrase that resonates with everybody or immediately uh, grabs you, but hang in there. Growing our core strength, subtitle, and working from um, the book of uh, 1 Peter, in the letter of 1 Peter in the New Testament, so you might want to be discreetly finding that on your devices at the moment. As chance or quirk of timing would have it, um, I found myself doing something which I have never done before in, in all my years as a moderately active sports person. It was the first thing. It wasn't that I entered a bodybuilding contest. That, that wasn't that. It was that I found myself on um, a sports physio couch this week, uh, a few days earlier this week. Uh, our lovely friend James Clapp, I don't think he's here this morning. He's a physio, and I had to go and see him because I've got a dodgy shoulder. Um, I don't think any of my kids are here, here and they're unlikely to be watching this online. So the, the secret is, the secret is I, I've got to get my shoulder fixed because we've got a tennis court where we're going in on, on the holiday in the summer and I've got to get it fixed because I can't serve at tennis at the moment because my, my shoulder's dodgy. So, and we're a competitive family, as you may know. Um, so I uh, found myself with James and uh, for 45 minutes, most of the time, he spent hurting my back and not going anywhere near my shoulder. And as I was wondering when he'd ever get anywhere near my shoulder, which was the thing which is actually hurting, he explained that basically what's going on here is an overcompensation for weakness in my back. He said, essentially, what you've got is these great big muscles. They're not functioning very well, so your shoulder is having to work far too hard, and that's why you've got a problem. What we need to do is put a bit more strength and stability into your core, and then your shoulder will be fine. He started sounding like a politician. Tim, you need strong and stable core. Not the, not the coalition of chaos that is going on in your, in your shoulder. So here's this series about bodybuilding, seeking for God to build his body, that's build us, the local church, as individuals, but as Trinity family together, as we pray, as we work, as we partner with him, so that he makes us stronger in our core. And I'm really excited about this series, that it's so easy to take our attention sometimes off things that really, really matter and, and lie beneath the surface of life and who we are and how we are and how we relate to others and our world. So I want to be able to serve better at tennis, or in fact, frank, frankly, serve at all, overarm at tennis. I need some deeper work on my core and my back. We want to be more fruitful as followers of Jesus. You want to be more effective where God has called you to be on your, your front line or with your neighbors, friends, work colleagues, family, and so on. You need to do, we always need to do some deeper work on those things that lie beneath, on our core. And here is Peter's first uh, letter to a scattered group or scattered groups of first century believers. 1 Peter 5.12, he says why he writes, he says, I'm writing, I've written this to encourage you. I love that word encourage, we love it, don't we? There's nothing quite like the power of encouragement, literally putting courage, putting strength into people so that you will live more faithfully as followers of Jesus. That's why he was writing to this group. So we're going to be looking at some of these encouragements over these next few weeks. 
overlapping themes, but all of them combining to offer strength by the power of God into this group of followers of Jesus. So are we up for that? I'm sure we're going amen inside. Yeah, I want to be somebody who's stronger. I want to be somebody who has more courage. I want us as a church family to respond to the grace and goodness and power of God, but to, to be stronger that we might be the more effective in the world and that we'd grow, grow us stronger. That's my prayer over the, the whole of this series. Grow us stronger, Lord, as a body. I hope it's yours too. All living things grow. Something's not growing, it's because it's dying. Where are you at at the moment with that in, in terms of testing the, the spiritual temperature of your faith? Are you somebody whose faith, you could point to some growth. You could say, yeah, I think in the last year I've, I've grown. Are you somebody who's hungry to grow more? So much depends on our hunger. We say that so often here, don't we? What we really want, what we're pushing into. So here might be a question. How hungry are you today? How hungry are you in this season to partner with God in his transforming of us and, and that we grow stronger in our core? So we're going to dive straight in, we're going to read um, some verses from, thanks Ed, from the first part of Peter's letter to these people here. So, so follow along, it's on the screen if you want. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkle with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Lovely greeting. And praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That may be familiar to you, to you may, may not be. I just want to pray again that God's word, Lord, you would put power on this word, power to do things in us that you want to do. We give you access, heart, mind, soul, body, Lord, to what you're wanting to bring about in your body. Build us, grow us, strengthen us. Draw us to yourself, Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. A little bit more background. Uh, this is probably written 30 years or so after the events of, of Calvary and the empty tomb, where Peter, of course, was very present. It's why he responds ultimately in that post-resurrection uh, meeting encounter with Jesus, isn't it? Peter, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. And here he is doing exactly that, fulfilling that mandate, feeding the people of God with truth. About 30 years later from those events, to people, a bunch of people scattered all over what we'd probably now call Turkey. Some of them uh, may even have been present maybe in Acts 2, at the, that first Pentecost where Peter was preaching that sermon. Anyhow, there they are, scattered believers, little groups, house churches, maybe smaller than this one, and he writes to them. And notice right at the start, <coughs> he reminds them who they are. Not going to dwell on this, but I just want to for a moment. He doesn't address them in terms of their uh, nationality or in terms of their 
uh, gender or their age or their backgrounds or their desires or their status in life or wherever, uh, any, any, of, any of those kinds of things, educational background, wealth. Those are all the ways in which the world might categorize and give value to people. No, Peter first and foremost says this, your identity is found in your relationship with God. Just remember that. Right at the beginning, this is who you are. He's your father. He knows you. He's called you. He's chosen you. He set you free because of the blood of Jesus that we have again celebrated this morning in communion. And now he's commissioned you to follow that same Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on you and to represent him in this world, this broken world. This world, by the way, which he goes on to say, in which you are um, resident aliens, you might describe it, strangers passing through. Here is not home. Because of this new identity, actually where you live geographically is no longer your first home. We have this kind of dual nationality thing going on. Yes, part of where we are planted, where we, where we live, where he's put us, but citizens equally of heaven, not just earth. We'll hear a bit more about that next week. But I love that the letter starts with who we are. Tom Wright says this, it is so easy to forget our basic identity as followers of Jesus. So important, therefore, that we allow ourselves to be reminded frequently, seriously, and thoroughly who we really are. And unless we do that, the insidious message that we get from the culture around us, which says that who we are is because of who our parents were, or where we live, or what we like, or how much we earn, or how good we are at stuff, it will eat away at us like rust in an old car. I love that. So, life for these followers, Peter describes, reminds them first and foremost who they are. He reminds them next, though, by way of background, that uh, life is pretty tough. Life is difficult. Life is, is hard. There's a kind of double suffering going on here, and indeed for the people of God. And we, we, can, we identify with life being difficult, for sure. Here and elsewhere, he refers in the letter to, you've suffered grief in all kinds of trials. And some of that at one level will be the kind of trial, the kind of suffering, the kind of pain that frankly is common to every human being. That is simply common in a broken and fallen world for all of us at some level or another. The, the pain of loss, the difficulty of bereavement, uh, close friendships not working out, dreams getting shattered, jobs not working out, health failing, uh, and those kind of things. Those are trials with which we are so familiar, there'll be many, many in the room right now facing those kinds of trials or things like them. All of that is implicit in Peter's mind, I'm sure, but the second level of suffering, which we need to latch hold of and just bear in mind as we go through these coming Sundays, these messages, is the suffering that comes uniquely to those whose allegiance is in Jesus. You call yourself a follower of Jesus here this morning and Jesus promises suffering for us. Not uh, the comfortable, easy life, we, we know that, but we need to be reminded of it. Time and again, my own belief is that um, we're going to experience a little more suffering for our faith. I don't think that we necessarily experience full-on persecution in the way that probably these first century believers did. I suspect that's coming. Personally, I welcome that, where the church is under uh, a certain amount of persecution precisely because it dares to speak the name of Jesus and hold on to truth in him, it invites persecution, that invites opposition, that invites abuse, and ten what tends to happen is the church tends to thrive. And uh, so maybe we could, it's interesting, the Chinese Christians who are suffering uh, enormously in many different ways, they, they, they say, please don't pray for, our, for the persecution to go, just pray that we'd be strong and respond well to it. Um, maybe that would become our prayer, I could go off on one here, but I, I won't at this point. <laughs> 
Maybe we see some, Tim Farron getting a really hard time on the TV the other day. Maybe those are some of the first fruits of, of a kind of persecution that might come. We might ask ourselves in passing, why are we not persecuted, by the way? <laughs> why is it that we don't attract the kind of opposition uh, that the first century believers did and, and many brothers and sisters do all around the world? That's quite a challenging question, I think, for us. I, I suspect part of the answer is that the enemy doesn't need persecution as a weapon. He uses seduction, and it's pretty effective for us. Anyhow, this kind of double level of, of, of hardship and difficulty going on for the people of God in those places, going on for the people of God here, being card-carrying followers of Jesus only adds in some respect to the experience of difficulty and it can just get costly. Really? Giving my whole life in surrender as Andrew's just prayed again? Uh, Lord, being, being those, offering ourselves, offering uh, generosity, uh, being otherly, serving in the kingdom, there's a price to pay for these things. Is it worth it? Should I carry on? There was something of a flavor of that in the recipients of this letter. And so Peter begins, and I'm just going to dwell on this just for a a few moments as our first kind of big theme, far too big for now, but just let me uh, open it up just a bit. Peter speaks into this situation as his first big word of encouragement, putting strength into the core of these people so that they could stand and stand firm under pressure, facing opposition from their culture. And it's the word of hope. It's the word of hope. Actually, it's two words. It's living hope in that uh, beautiful opening of 1 Peter, which is actually one glorious sentence, more or less, in the Greek, great, long, complicated sentence. But there in the midst of it shines out this first encouragement. There is living hope that will make us strong. I lived in Derbyshire. I had a friend who lived in a village quite nearby. The village was called Hope. We used to tease him. You live in hope. You live in hope. And and of course he did. And actually all of us want to try to live in hope. The question is though, and the question Peter poses, what kind of hope? What kind of hope are you living in at the moment? Are we living in? To what extent is the hope that you identify in yourself, this kind of hope that is perspective changing, that is outrageous, that is unbreakable, that is undeniable, that is Jesus focused, that is life giving. Is your hope this kind of a hope? We're going to explore that just a little bit. Hope is enormously compelling. Cicero said, where there is life, there's hope. I might put it the other way around, where there's hope, there's life. It's like the oxygen in, in, in the lungs of a human being, is it not? Lots of things have been said around hope, good things, true things. Christopher Reeve, um, Superman, before he was confined to a wheelchair through a horrible accident. In fact, after he was, sorry, he said this. He said, once you choose hope, anything is possible. You can live for about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight days without air, but only for a few seconds without hope. Martin Luther King, if you lose hope, You lose the vitality that keeps life moving. You lose that courage to be, that quality that helps you to go on in spite of it all. And so today I still have a dream, he said, because I still have hope. So here's a question that needs to be answered a little more fully as you allow the Holy Spirit of God to examine you. Where is your hope based? And to what extent is it this kind of living hope? How can I be more full of this living hope. I think we hope in all kinds of levels, don't we? All sorts of hopes. If I said, what are you hoping for right now? You come up with a whole range of different answers varying from, I hope this talk doesn't go on too long. I hope there's still some, um, I hope there's some gas in the barbecue when I get home so I can uh, cook food. I hope that uh, my team win this afternoon. I hope that my kids are revising properly for their exams uh, uh, and on and on. 
different sorts of levels. All of those I'd trade in for Arsenal winning the FA Cup, obviously, <laughs> which uh, is a hope I know some of us share. But going deeper, I was talking to somebody quite recently from this church gathering um, who lost her mother quite recently and at quite a young age. And we had a conversation along, along these lines. She said something very striking. It struck with me. And leaping from those kind of shallower things to something a little more profound. She said this, there's nothing quite like the reality of death and dying to wake you up to the reality of life and living. It's a powerful thing to say, isn't it? Nothing quite like the, de- the reality of death and dying to wake you up to the reality of life and living. And she went on to this effect. It's, something is changing in my perspective on what matters, my priorities and my hopes and my dreams. And it's not that they're false or thin. It's just that some of them seem shallower than I thought they were for a better home or a better job or a better future, whatever. She said even some of the deeper hopes, not, the conversation went into some of those deeper hopes that we can have around who we're becoming, around our friendships, around our marriages, Hopes that extend even further towards, uh, t- towards our, our region, our, our nation, things going on in the, in the wider world. She said, even those have a shelf life in the end, don't they? It's true. It doesn't make them wrong hopes, but we have these hopes at all kinds of different uh, levels, to different degrees. And that took us into deeper territory, doesn't it? Just as 1 Peter does here. Actually, eternal territory. Living hope is hope that never dies, isn't it? That's what it is, by definition. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Sure, mind-stretching. We've gone to hoping for barbecue gas to hoping eternally and basing our hope on the resurrection of Jesus. But friends, we have to. If we want to be strong in our call, this is where God's word takes us. And we need to be really careful if we're pinning deeper hopes anywhere else or basing them anywhere else as we face the stuff of life. A hope that never dies, like a, like a mountain spring that never stops bubbling. So sure, I might hope for, uh, you know, for sunny weather tomorrow or for, for my business to improve or for uh, the sickness to go or for Brexit to go well or whatever, whatever. And we pray and we, we work for those things. But ultimately, ultimately, whenever we place our hope on human wisdom, on uh, medical science, on chance, on uh, qualifications, all that kind of stuff, leadership decisions, they are by definition limited. They're by definition fragile and frail. So much false hope actually around. Don't need to um, give you the examples I've got written down here. Just turn on the TV and watch any advert. In fact, I heard the head of Revlon saying recently, talking about the products, makeup products for women, he said, we don't sell women makeup, we sell them hope. (laughs) I'm not going to go there but living hope there's not false hope here not fragile hope not limited hope living hope in Jesus is always sure it's always the best kind of hope it's always solid it's always enduring it's always the hope that never dies it's always the best kind a hope that is not subject to circumstances or ageing or our experience or the frailties of people, or the brokenness of leadership, or the economic system, or the environment, or your education, or the state of your health, or the state of the nation, or even the world. It's not a kind of hope that is vague optimism, that kind of wishful thinking, I hope it's going to be okay. The Bible kind of hope is never that hope. Here is living, powerful hope. Why, verse 3, because Jesus is living and powerful. That's it. That's the basis of hope. And nothing can rob me of it. 
You might feel this morning, we're going to be praying in a minute, for those who are low in hope. You might feel that you're somebody who's even been drained of hope. Nobody can rob you of this hope because Jesus is alive. And if in any way, if you've begun a relationship and, and walking with him, you cannot be robbed of this hope because it's eternal. My dad died last year, as, as so many of you know in the family here. Tough time. But he was never more full of hope than on his deathbed whilst he had breath in his lungs to express that and the ability to. It was a beautiful thing to behold. Why? Because he didn't, his deepest hope wasn't in anything that can be lost. Like all those things that I've just mentioned. Like health or like houses or, or money or land or reputation or skills or even family or friends or marriage. He wasn't trying to cling on to any of that. The inheritance that he knew God was giving him, that we can know that God is giving us, is an eternal one. And our hope is there. Eternity is such a mind-stretching thing, but friends, when we lose sight of us as eternal beings, God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women, then we lose something that is profound and important. Verse four, it's an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. It's kept in heaven for you. Eternal relationship with God our Father. Eternal relationship with those who give their yes to Jesus forever. Kept in heaven for us. It's protected, says this word. It's, it, it's kept safe by God for us. And in the meantime, by the way, he keeps us safe for it, for that heavenly experience and reward in time to come. How do we receive it? Short version, be born again, says verse one. Be born again. Surrender an old life that's not working very well. Surrender that life which is centered around me and my stuff and my desires and is self-absorbed and wants to run its own show. Surrender that life. Lay down that life. Receive a new life, confessing that we need the only person who can give it, the author of life, Jesus who came, who died, who is our rescuer, who is our Lord. Receive that life. Receive new life. If, if, you, if you have received it, go down, as we're going to be doing in a few weeks' time, into this swimming pool here as a symbol of, new, of an old life dying and a new life being given. Be born again into new hope, new destiny, new freedom, new forgiveness. Be born into all that God has got for you. Be born again, and then you get hope. Eternal hope, hope that never dies. Church, we have to plant our hope there. How do we grow in it? How do we live in it? I've got about 37 points. I can't give any of them. I'll give one. (laughs) Shorthand version. By faith. By faith, verse 5. By faith, this grows. Sure, wobbly, fragile faith at times. Absolutely. The kind of faith that gets tested in the image there in, in 1 Peter, that kind of the refiner's fire. It's what it's about. It's what trials do, by the way. Never waste pain. Why not? Because trials and pain and suffering serve as God's refining fire to grow faith. How, have, how we're rejoicing and having seen that in, in our midst in these past few months and recent times. Faith has grown in the midst of trial and difficulty by staking my all on Jesus, by staking my all, my entire life on the fact that he came, that he died for me, that he rose again, the resu- through the resurrection, God has given living hope. Through experiences of the wonder of his love, through the experiences that we have, so not just the, the apologetics, the fact of the resurrection, the fact of the church, the fact of transformation of weary and wobbly believers who became this life force that changed the whole of human history, 
But our experience, your experience, what do you stand on? What do you look back to? Have you got experiences? Are you banking them more and more? The experiences of the presence of God in your life, the experiences of how he has changed you, the experiences of prayers that have been answered, that stack up and say, no, that can't be coincidence. The experiences of people like Chloe, who gives her testimony of life was like this, but now it's changing and it's more like this. Have we got those testimonies? Are we sharing those testimonies? I've got another brilliant one. I can't give it now. Come again next week. Fabulous testimony from somebody in the church family who had lost hope, was in danger of being in a very dark place. And yet somehow through faith, through the encouragement of others, through that beautiful thing of the Spirit of God, through the church, through, through his body, putting faith and hope back into this person. So now that she's uh, rejoicing and in a, a much lighter place. And the certainty that Jesus will return one day and all will be made well. I'll close with this story. Some of you will have heard, many of you I think probably heard of Joni Erickson Tada. She was 17 when she had a diving accident. She, she dived into a pool and there was no water in it. She ended up uh, as a quadriplegic. She has no feeling from the neck downwards. She was at a conference not so long ago. And there was a moment when the speaker said, and now I'd like everybody who's able to please to, to kneel in worship on the, on the floor. And, uh, and she, Joni was there and she saw everybody, hundreds and hundreds of people getting out of their chairs and kneeling in worship on the floor and she began to weep and weep and weep. And it wasn't, she said, at all a self-pitying kind of a weep that she couldn't. It was just such a beautiful sight, she said. And as she uh, was crying these tears of thanksgiving for the God who, who loved her, she had a vision of heaven, a vision of what is to come where there'll be one day no pain. And she, she, she wrote this. Sitting there in my wheelchair, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up and to dance and to kick and to do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. And I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. And I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body. And light and bright and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection of Jesus gives to someone spinal cord injured like me? Said journey. And friends, and the truth is, of course, what we celebrate today and what we're going to pray into now is that it's a hope that is not just for spinal cord injury, injured people like journey. It is for you sitting there, and it's for me. It's the hope that is for everyone. When other things perish and spoil and fade, and pretty much everything does, and when hope trickles away, or blows up, or wears out, or melts down, this hope remains. Living hope that never dies. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Because Jesus is alive and loves us. So church family, Trinity family, for his sake, for our sake, for the sake of a world that doesn't yet know this, let's resolve to grow stronger in our core. Let's resolve to grow in living hope and plant ourselves there in Jesus' name. Let's stand together.